to the genesis of how I figured out what I would talk about, which is still happening now. Uh, when Jack first asked me to come tonight, looking ahead in his calendar and knowing that he wouldn't be here, I thought, well, that's great. That's exactly the night that I'd like to come because um, it's certainly the weekend of uh, a lot of consciousness about um, transformation and liberation and freedom been Easter yesterday and it's been Passover yesterday and today continuing so in in all, in all of the country in the whole Judeo-Christian context people have been talking about freedom and liberation renewal people have been eating eggs in one ceremony or another uh, <laughs> As a ceremony of rebirth, really, which is not exactly a Buddhist word. Well, it is a Buddhist word, but it's not exactly a desirable thing from the <laughs> Buddhist point of view. Talk about getting off the rounds of rebirth. So instead of talking about rebirth, I'd like to talk about renewal. So when he first asked me to be here, whenever it was, some weeks ago, I thought, great, I'll talk about the Buddhist path as a path for transformation, inner transformation, and liberation and freedom and renewal. Transformation and how does that happen? So that was topic number one that I thought about. Then I uh, learned about from a friend of mine who's very active in uh, the movement for a nuclear-free world and plutonium-free world and a tremendous activist. I love that she is doing that because uh, I am tremendously supportive of it, but my life works out, so I'm here doing this more, so I feel like I am doing this on her behalf, and she is doing her work on my behalf. And today is the very day that begins a 21-day consideration in the United Nations of the Non-Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. So today is the beginning of three weeks of those deliberations. And there are all kinds of people making demonstrations outside of the United Nations headquarters in New York. And I thought, well, wonderful, be perfect because I'll be at Spirit Rock that night and I can tell 100 or 150 people about that. And maybe we can think of some way in which in spirit, at least, and maybe in some way in action, we put some energy into the kinds of voices that want to speak out clearly for really protecting the world. So I have some... Yeah, George? Turn the volume up a little bit. I'm sorry. Okay. Is that all right? Okay. Um... So I thought we'd talk about that, and I have some ideas for that. But then I thought, well, I could put that in with the transformation and liberation because uh, it's really important because one of the things that becomes transformed, I think, through practice and through insight is our dedication and our commitment to addressing the pain in the world. So I thought, okay, you can do that. And then this afternoon, I just happened to pass by somebody who was watching the McNeilera report this afternoon at 3.30, and there was a discussion. How many people here saw that this afternoon or heard it or something? The discussion of um, 
the new book out by Robert McNamara about who knew what, when, and uh, I had a, a, a one one way in which that whole discussion, which is so upsetting in terms of discovering that people really knew long in advance of the end of the war. Uh, that it was really not well substantiated, and really uh, the the three million Vietnamese who died and the fifty seven thousand Americans who died. Uh, so the discussion itself and the truth that it's revealing is itself upsetting. I felt good about the fact that we live in a place where we discuss that sort of thing and where two sides, two different kinds of voices from reputable thinking people can be heard on national television. And I thought, well, there's something valuable to be learned from this, that we can talk about this, that we can maybe, if we listen and we tell our friends, and we tell them in a non-angry way, in a, a way that fires up their resolve to make their voices heard, we can begin to not have this happen again. So I thought, well, I can put that into my talk also because that has to do with the kinds of uh, dedication to social action that I think is part of the transformation of consciousness. So by that time, I had three different topics that I was thinking about. And then when we came and we began to sit, and I realized that there were a fair number of people here who hadn't been here before, I decided to give sitting instructions. And I was listening to the sitting instructions. I said them, you know, I don't have them memorized, so it's what comes out at any particular time. But then I thought it's really important uh, to hear the particular part of the instruction that says, we're not practicing to develop a capacity that we don't have inherently. That the capacity to see clearly, which includes the capacity to make wise judgments, is really something that's innate to us. If we slow down, if we clear the mind, if we cut through the confusion that's there, that's what will be there. We don't have to dis develop wisdom. We are, if we are clear-headed, fundamentally able to make wise and wholesome choices. That's a tremendously inspiring point of practice for me. And it wasn't one that I understood clearly in the beginning of my practice, and it's one that I've come to cherish through my years of practice, and it's really what I'd like to tell most to new meditators. And so I'd like to tell them um, uh, explanations for why, if we already have that capacity for wise, compassionate, kind judgment, do we need to practice? And how does this somewhat strange practice of sitting quietly and attending to body sensations and primarily the breath allow us to manifest our wisdom or to come in touch with our wisdom so then we can then behave wisely and compassionately and so we can go out and devote ourselves to responding to social issues. So then I thought, well, now if I talk about all of that, I've now uh, arranged to give a talk on the meaning of everything. And <laughs> I, have, I have a friend who once wrote an article, it was published in the transpersonal journal called The Meaning of Everything, 
And at the time, I thought it was hubris that he should write an article called The Meaning of Everything, but maybe that's what I'll try to do. It's not the meaning of everything. I'm not going to try to do that. I'm going to do a little bit of the meaning of lots of things (laughs) that all have to do with each other. I want to talk a little bit about transformation. And um, some of you may have heard me tell a story. It's been on my mind for a couple of years, so I tell it from time to time, of a really transformative moment, using the word again, really informative moment in my teaching life that happened a few years ago when uh, I was in Israel and talking to a a spiritual teacher there that I met through a mutual friend and explaining that I was a Buddhist meditation teacher and explaining to this person in another spiritual tradition what we did here and what I taught and explaining about... um, the practice of um, mindful um, awareness, the practice of developing while sitting or while walking or in all aspects of daily life, the capacity to pay attention calmly to what's going on, which is really what this practice is. We're just doing it in the sitting form now, but really it's the style of living a life in order to see clearly what's true fundamentally about life. And fundamentally to discover that everything is impermanent, that the cause of suffering is clinging, and that everything is conditioned and everything is interrelated, the three fundamental characteristics of all experience. So I explained to this particular teacher that that's what we do here, that we do this particular practice of attending to sensations or attending to the breath or paying attention to the coming and going of mind states not in order to be good breath watchers or good mind labelers, but really to see clearly what's the truth about life. When I got all finished, what I thought was a pretty good explanation, he said, how, I, I ended up by saying everybody gets insights about the fundamental truths of life. And he said, how do the truths, the insights, that those people develop in their practice manifest in their lives. He said, do they? So I thought for a minute, and I said, yes, yes, they do. Uh, I, I guessed that they did, and I said, yes, I think they're more kind and more compassionate. Then I came back to Spirit Rock the next month, and I told that story, and I said, hey, That's what I said. So are you more kind and more compassionate? And people said, yes, yes, we are. So I felt good about that. And I also said to them, and they assured me, I said, I'm also more kind and more compassionate. But I didn't start my practice to be kind and compassionate. If someone would have said, come out to Spirit Rock or come to this Buddhist retreat center, which is what they did for me, to go take this Vipassana retreat, if they would have said it'll make you more kind and compassionate, I would have said I'm already kind and compassionate. That's not my problem. I'm fearful. I'm worried. I don't know the meaning of life. I don't know how I'm going to cope with all the problems of life as I get older. I don't have an understanding of what's going on. There are lots of things I would have said, but I wouldn't have said I'm looking for a practice to make me more kind. I also would not have said... I'm looking for a practice to make me more of a social activist. 
I was, in fact, a quite dedicated social activist, especially because I was I was um, a young mother in the time of the Vietnam War, and I was one of the people who marched with Mothers for Peace and Women for Peace and pushed babies down, baby strollers down Geary Boulevard. Anybody here was one of those people walking down Geary Boulevard pushing people in baby strollers? Uh, so if someone would have said, take up this practice because you'll become more socially active, I already was socially active, was somewhat demoralized about the, the shape of the world, and I didn't know how to deal with my inner sense of devastation about what was going on. So how many people here, as a result of their practice, their meditation practice, feel that they are more kind? more compassionate, more socially engaged, more moral. I mean, everybody's pretty moral to begin with. Are you more scrupulous, okay? That's more scrupulous about truthfulness? You think about it more? I'm glad to see that because that's all what should happen. When I started my practice in the 1970s, the emphasis in practice was on direct experience, direct insight, through intensive meditation practice, uh, with a lot of emphasis on altered states. We went to retreats. We didn't have places to come once a week and hear about Dharma. We went away for retreats, and we went for 10 days or two weeks or whatever. The model that we use, which is the model of Theravada practice, is um, the path to enlightenment, the path of insight, really. So there are two kinds of that. There are two paths, actually: the path to enlightenment, which is the eightfold path of the Buddha. Which, for the benefit of the folks who have not been here before and don't know, has eight parts in it. Right understanding, which is understanding that suffering comes from clinging. A little bit understanding of that peace is possible in this life. A little bit understanding that if we don't see clearly, we'll, we'll, we'll struggle and we'll suffer. At least a little bit of right understanding that will lead with, to right aspiration which means the aspiration to figure out a way to live more clearly so that we don't make unwholesome choices and we live more wisely. Right action, which means that we don't choose ways of acting that cause more pain to ourselves and to the people around us because ultimately that will let, lead to tension in the mind and more suffering. Right speech, which is a specialized mode of right action. I think because we have such power in speech that it needs a whole category all by itself. Right livelihood, which means that we choose something to do. doesn't cause pain to ourselves and to other people. Right effort, which means the effort to cultivate in the mind those mind states that are wholesome, that bring... Uh, clarity to the mind and to 
notice them in the mind when they're there and try to cultivate them and to likewise notice, notice those factors in the mind that are unwholesome and lead to pain and distress. And when they're there, try to not cultivate them, try to put them out of the mind. Right, concentration, which means the ability to keep the mind focused in a certain way so that we can notice what mind states are there, wholesome and unwholesome, and make right effort. And right mindfulness, which really means the growing capacity to be relaxed and alert in every moment of experience so that we can know what it is accept it with some sort of balanced awareness, not be in denial, be present for it, and make some wholesome, balanced response to it. That's what mindfulness is. So that's one model of a path that's the Buddha's Eightfold Path. In the meditation path, in the Theravada tradition, you went from a beginning rung on the path through particular levels of insight. And so it was a really graduated path, and you're supposed to practice intensive meditation so that you could see more and more directly and more and more in an intimate, immediate way how the mind functions, how mind states arise and pass away, how clinging causes suffering, how everything, every moment conditions the next moment. And as the mind became more and more focused and more and more clear and more and more insights about the meaning fundamental truths of life presented themselves. So the fundamental truths of the suffering caused when any amount of struggle in the mind, any amount of not surrendering to the moment is present. So that on a direct level, you notice that truth of the suffering that's part of clinging. And so the model was very much a retreat model. It was very much a striving model. And it was very much an overtime model. And it was very much a personal achievement model in terms of you tried very hard directly to experience the truths of the Buddha for yourself. And in fact, when the Buddha died, in the very last teaching that he did just before he died, he said, don't take my word for this. Everybody should do it for themselves. Everybody make an effort to see for sure Get it by yourself, the truth that suffering causes clinging. Then you'll be able to devote yourself to other people. But he said, do it by yourself. I love it that the last words that he was said to have said before he died was strive on with diligence. Try hard. And so inspiring. On that model... That model is a very monastic model. And it has carried along with it certain baggage that I think has not survived the trip very well. A piece of the baggage that it's carried along, so I'd like to correct certain spiritual myths. A piece of the baggage that it's carried along is that the Theravada tradition is a very selfish tradition, kind of every man for himself. And really, every man for himself. Women were not as uh, equal a partner in that scene. They were not 2,000 years ago an equal partner in any scene. So I don't think that the Buddhist scene was worse for that, but it's true about it. But 
I went to a, I went, I was in a hotel in Chile two years ago at some sort of a, a conference, and there was a party, and someone came to meet me, and the following conversation happened. Young man, a college-age man, came over, and he said, I've come over to meet you because I'm a college student. I go to such and such a college in Canada. And uh, my parents spoke with you a little earlier, and they said that you were a Buddhist teacher. And I'm taking a course in Eastern religions, and I wanted to meet a Buddhist teacher. So I said, hello. He said, uh, he said, what kind of Buddhism do you teach? I said, I teach in the Theravada tradition. He said, oh, then you're one of those selfish Buddhists who are only interested in their own enlightenment. So that's the first myth that I'd like to dispel so it's a myth that's cut down, I think, inside and outside Buddhism. Later Buddhism, the Mahayana path, uh, which was, tended to make a comparison that made the early Buddhist teachings and the early Buddhist scene seem uh, not inclusive, was really an emphasis on monastic practice and really a, an emphasis on becoming a monk. And with the spread of Buddhism across Asia through China and into Japan and the development of Buddhism over centuries, really, it transformed itself from being a practice that monastics did to being a way of life that everyone did. And so at that point, there was a kind of a pejorative sense about the early practice. Those were the people who were interested only in their own enlightenment whereas this is a practice available to everyone that everyone does for the benefit of everyone. So I think that's not, I, I think anyway, it's just, a, it's just a myth that came through as an accident of transmission, so I want to clarify that. The other myth I thought I would clarify, not that anybody here necessarily needs it, but it's one that I run into every once in a while, is that people who talk about karma are complacent about what happens to people. Have you ever heard that when people will say, well, it's their karma? As if meaning to say, something, ha something this person did, either earlier in this life or in some previous lifetime, has caused these unfortunate conditions that they're experiencing right now. And so you just have to let it happen. Maybe, maybe if, if you didn't hear it now, I'm just as well. Maybe I shouldn't even tell it to you. But in the, in the early days, in the early days, it instead sounds like I'm 100 years old, in the 70s when we were just getting conversant, <laughs> when we were just becoming conversant about karma and Eastern thought, there was a kind of a tendency to say, well, it must be my karma, their karma, suggesting that one shouldn't intervene. You should let it unfold. And there was a way, I think, of using uh, the notion of karma, which really means that things have consequences, actions have consequences, to validate indifference in life and to justify indifference on the part of people who wanted to be indifferent. So that's another myth that's not true. Uh, tell you another myth that's long been dispelled that uh, spiritual people are not political. Was at a conference where George Leonard was talking to a room of 400 people who had come there because it was a conference on, uh, I, I guess, spiritual psychotherapy. 
And he said, how many people here have a spiritual practice? Raise your hand, everybody raised. That how many people here have a physical practice that you run every day, or you do some yoga, or you walk, or you breathe, or you do any of those things? Everybody put their hand up. Nearly everybody. He said, how many people voted in the last election? Also, nearly everybody put their hand up, thereby dispelling the myth that somehow spirituality was something that you did apart from your life. I heard one of my uh, teachers some years ago, overhearing, this is before I was teaching, this is probably about ten, 10 years ago, I was listening to a discussion between some teachers of mine. I may have been doing my apprenticeship at that point. I remember them talking about what they wanted to do still in their practice. And one of them, who is a good friend of mine anyway now, said, I want to have a deeper appreciation of suffering. And I thought, hmm, that's, you know, I, I, I recognize that as something because I thought to myself, uh-oh, I'm not even sure that I'm handling the suffering that I've got very well. Not sure that that was one. I, I thought I was in this because I wanted to come to the end of suffering and not have a more direct experience of And I've recently come to really appreciate what he meant. Because I think that what happens through practice, through, again, gradual and repeated experiences of telling oneself the truth, one's own experience and what's going on around, which is what mindfulness is, that we come more and more to see how much pain there is, our own and other people, how much suffering comes from struggling with the pain rather than dealing with it as best we can and develops a certain, uh, uh, develops more and more kindness and compassion. It's really what I'm getting around to saying. I think that it's not really possible to have insights in this practice without them manifesting as kindness and compassion. It's really why I told you about that those gradations of the Eightfold Path, these are the three having to do with how you behave, right speech, right action, right livelihood. These are the three that have to do with this mysterious meditation practice, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And these are the two that have to do with any amount of insight or realization that you have, right understanding and right aspiration. I don't think it's possible to compartmentalize them can't say, as we did in the early practice, we were just going to meditate, we were going to have extraordinary experiences, we were going to be totally high or totally focused, or we were going to have some extraordinary internal experience, we were going to get enlightened, we were going to levitate, or I don't know what we were going to do, but we were going to, that's what we were all on the trail of, some extraordinary experience. And many of us had come directly from the whole psychedelic era of extraordinary experiences. <laughs> where we realize that those extraordinary experiences... You remember that Ramdas says said one line in Be Here Now that I, ca- that I think caused zillions of people to meditate. He said, at one point... He, how many re- people read Be Here Now? Okay, so... All right. 
There's a line in which he has described all of his uh, experiences with psychedelics. And he said, I discovered finally that no matter how high you got and how long you stayed high, eventually you came down. So I went to India to find a guru to learn to meditate. Now, I think those are two events. A is true and B is true. But they were strung in a sentence because in Ramdas's life, and Ramdas is a great friend of mine, so this is not anything pejorative about him. But the way that the sentences strung together caused me to understand that the point of meditation was to get high and stay high. Because that's what it sounds like. Not that the point is to do better social action or to be more scrupulously moral or... Uh, pay exactly the taxes that you're supposed to pay or uh, <laughs> uh, that particular segue of speech. So this didn't work, so I did that. And I think a lot of people in those days, myself included, surely, began to do meditation practice because we wanted something extraordinary to happen to us. I think the extraordinary extra thing that none of us were planning on was that we would become, in addition to having some very extraordinary experiences, is not to say that that's not a part of that middle part of the path. It is very extraordinary to see on a direct um, level those truths about experience. It is amazing to have the kinds of bliss or rapture or sometimes very exotic experiences that happen in intense sitting practice. They are extraordinary, and they're not isolated. They do lead to an increased intention to live one's life more scrupulously, and they do lead to more understanding and more aspiration to address pain and suffering wherever we can. They're not apart from that. There's actually a piece of Theravada teaching that says, remember I was talking about there's a certain uh, ladder in the progress of insight. First you see this, then you see this, then you see this, then you see this, then you see this. Then you have a glimpse of nirvana, so they say. Somewhere along on that path is a certain particular awareness. Really the awareness of, profound awareness of arising and passing away. It's really true. Everything is arising and passing away. You can see in a direct way in the most minute aspect of every breath, but you can see in a macro way. This day began, now it's ending. Easter was coming, now it's past. all kinds of levels from the most macro to the most micro to get that insight. And it's said that when you really get that insight profoundly, you are so convinced of the truth of all of the Buddha's teachings and so, in fact, purified in your own awareness that you can't break a precept. That's amazing, isn't it? I checked that out with my friends we presumably should all have that level of insight. Say, so can you break a precept? Mostly what we're sure about is 
that we don't do it purposely, and if we do it accidentally, it catches us. You feel it afterwards. It's not you feel not right about it. You catch yourself during, or you catch yourself afterwards. I'm not talking about gross kinds of misbehaviors because nobody here does that. Do you ever have a feeling? Did it ever come up for you when you were sitting? Because it comes up lots of times in quiet sitting where all of a sudden you remember something that you didn't do right. Did that ever come to you? Sudden kind of moral inventory. And in, the most, in, in, a, in a minor way, I'll suddenly remember I should have called so-and-so back and I didn't. Or I finished that conversation too fast on the telephone. That person really needed to talk longer. And I wasn't there for them. So it's some <coughs> small thing, not a huge big thing. We none of us do huge things. But I find that my moral scorecard is more alert for what's the correct behavior and what's not. And it doesn't always catch me on time to do it exactly right then. But it catches me later and it catches me a lot while I sit. It's as if it's waiting for me to sit down to say, remember this, remember this, go back and do that, make this reparation. First started to happen to me in intensive retreats. I was really unhappy to discover, because I think of myself as a pretty kind person, thoughtful, all of that, but an image of myself, maybe, maybe too much image. And the first time that started to happen to me, I discovered, wow, I'd be, I was actually doing metta practice, which... I think conditions more spontaneous moral inventory. And I discovered, and I've discovered it since, that at a certain point in the practice, certain point in the retreat, I'm, it's as if I've touched a switch that says, now give me a computer readout of everything that I <laughs> haven't done right in the last couple of weeks. And you get a whole readout. You didn't call this, you didn't do that, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. And in the beginning, it was demoralizing because uh, I was hoping not to have quite such a long list. And then I changed over my sense about it and I became remoralized, not demoralized, because I thought the name of this practice is the path of purification. It's the purification of the heart. I thought to myself, far out, it works. So I feel good about that. It's a kind of field test of the practice. That's why I asked you, when you sit, say how many people said yes? When you sit, you suddenly remember, I should do this, I should do that, I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done that. So it is. So good. I'm, I'm thinking about these days, so it's nice to have a, some kind of um, corroboration that it's true. In the beginning of my practice, people did not talk about sila practice, about morality practice, as a whole practice. They talked about it is something that it probably made sense to do if you wanted to meditate. The main action was over here in the meditation, which was really where the exciting, interesting things would happen. And so kind of people passed over the right action, right speech, right livelihood part with not too much uh, emphasis. So it'd be a good idea if you did right action, right speech, right livelihood, because if you don't, it'll probably trouble your conscience and then you won't be able to meditate well. But the real action was on the meditate. So it wasn't right action, right livelihood, right speech for its own sake. It was to be able to be a good meditator. Even the right understanding and the right aspiration 
was enough understanding so he could meditate. And all the action was over here. I've come to appreciate that if I decide that I'm going to do right action for practice or right livelihood or right speech, it requires tremendous concentration, tremendous effort, tremendous mindfulness, because we are acting all the time. We're making actions in the world in order to be attentive to what's the intention of the heart in this moment or the next moment. I have to pay tremendous attention, not to really be concentrated. So I don't think there are any of them different. But the whole path is one path. I once had an interview with a Tibetan Lama that I went to see to consult about my practice for technical reasons. Some some interesting energetic things were going on with my practice. It's kind of an exciting time. And so I went to see a particular Tibetan Lama who was in the Bay Area for some few weeks, and I made an appointment, and I went to see him and uh, told him my whole interesting story. And I think I wanted to impress him a little bit with what an interesting practice I had going at the time. <laughs> so I told him my whole story, and, when I, and I thought he'd give me some tremendous technical maneuver that I could do one way or another with my mind or my body or my energy. So I told him my whole story, speaking through an interpreter. I got all finished. He said, uh, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So I scrambled around a little bit in the mind and I thought about, well, what we say classically in the texts is if you do the progress of insight, if you see clearly the truth, the three fundamental truths, if you arrive at wisdom, which is really the goal in terms of those early scripture, then the fruit of wisdom or the reflection of wisdom will be compassion. And they say the Dharma flies on the two wings of wisdom and compassion. So I didn't say that whole long thing, of course, to him, but I said, well, in the tradition that I practice, the understanding is that through practice, people arrive at wisdom and then they behave compassionately. It's the right answer, but it's a textbook answer. And I really gave it to him because I wasn't sure what he was asking about. So I got all finished with my answer, gone through the interpreter, and then he said, no, really. How much compassion practice do you do every day? So I was obliged to say, what do you mean? He said, well, how much do you go out every day and look around and see how, how much pain there is in the world? And how do you relate to it? How do you open to it? What do you do with it? That was a very good instruction. It's more than 10 years ago that I went to him. I remember it very clearly. It's the counterpart story to my friend Joseph saying, I want to have a more clear understanding of suffering. So what I thought I wanted to ask you tonight is how do you practice every day? Do you do compassion practice every day? How do you do compassion practice every day? Is it an interesting idea for you? One of the things that we do in the Wednesday morning class, we don't talk about it every single week, but we talk about it enough, is we try to have as a practice to do something extra in the course of regular life that we would not do 
that requires thinking of a kindness. You know the bumper stickers that say practice random acts of kindness? Sort of in that realm of random acts of kindness, but it's not totally random because we make a promise to each other that we're going to do three of them every day. And um, many of us, probably many people here, work in work that is, uh, by its very nature, totally compassionate. If I said raise your hands now, if you're a um, health care giver, hospice worker, um, psychotherapist, uh, some sort of a therapist, probably a third of the people here would be that. So it's already compassionate action. I think every kind of a job, if we do it, in a good heart, is compassionate action. I think that that's a point of right livelihood. Can you think of something that's right livelihood that isn't compassionate action? So what we've done in the Wednesday morning classes, we said not counting livelihood. Livelihood counts, but we're not counting it in our practice. And so it's the extra stuff, and we do very small things. As I'm thinking about whether or not I'll be embarrassed to tell you that it sounds very much like the Boy Scout kind of one good deed a day. We do things like step out of line in the supermarket and say to the person behind us, you look like you're in a hurry, would you like to go ahead of me? Or um, we do the same thing in the bank. Uh, what it requires is right mindfulness, of the, right, right alertness in the situation, right effort, right concentration. You have to remember to do it. And it, rem- and it requires a moment of non-greed because you're in a hurry to get out of the supermarket or out of the bank or out of somewhere. So you need a moment of mindfulness. You have to say, ah, oh, this is what's happening. I'm in a hurry to go out. So is this person. I give them my place. And it's just a moment of practicing mindfulness in life. Do you like that practice? You want to try it? And I'll come back in a few months and ask you if you did it. Can you give me another example? How did you do it today? Where did you do that somewhere today? Yeah. Well, this I think is one of the hardest ones, but uh, I think if you if you're you're in a bank or you're in a store or you're wherever you are and someone is waiting on you and they're having a really bad day and it's coming back to you, you know, they're being rude to you, they're being nasty, inconsiderate of what you're trying to do. In fact, a friend of mine and I were just talking about this. Instead of, as we all want to do, it's like, boy, you sure are nasty, whatever. <laughs> Instead of doing that, then just to to acknowledge their state, you know, and how hard their job is, or that this is not an easy thing that you want them to do, um, you know, that you really appreciate their efforts on your part. And you can turn people's day around mm-hmm. in a moment, you know, in a in a second, mm-hmm. and where you would never be able to do that in any other way, mm-hmm. but to be compassionate to their scene at the time, you know. This is good to hear about. Let's hear one more. What did you do today that was good? Go ahead. Further the 
person ahead of you and they want to be even more ambitious and so do you. You have a bit of a Dharma contest. Well, but here, here is really what I was getting to because I wanted it, I really had in mind that it would be somewhat more global than the supermarket. Because I want to come back to, I, 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 no, and, and I seriously want to tell you that we do that on the Wednesday morning class because it's not so much who's online, where, but the consciousness of making life easier for other people and being responsible for the lives of other people. So I want to come back to the dismay that I have that I know you all share about Robert McNamara's book, the dismay that we have every time we think that choices are being made in, by, by whatever the powers that be that are not for the well-being of all beings. You think, why are these choices being made? And never mind why they are being made, how can we have an impact so that they can, do not continue to be made? And I was thinking about a poem that I heard years ago by Pablo Neruda, where he said, let's all sit down now and count to ten quietly and think about what if everybody in the whole world at the same time sat down and counted to ten. The notion that if we all got quiet for a little while, we could be a little saner. We have a way of doing our metta out loud on Wednesdays, so we announce to ourselves out loud all the names of all the people that we're thinking about, and we hear the person next to us announcing their names, and they're saying, John, Harry, Linda, Joe, Meg, Bruce, and there's different names, we don't know them, but we have the image that if everybody in the whole world sat down and said the names of the people that they were thinking about, that eventually everyone would take care of everybody. I have the same notion about us doing the supermarket lines or the bank lines, that if... Um, Hundreds of people in Marin suddenly were super thoughtful of each other. Other people would start to be super thoughtful of each other, would get to be an epidemic, and then it could spread. I don't know another way to change the notion of uh, every man for himself and every woman for himself to the notion of me for everybody else except by doing it from a, as a grassroots action. And that's what I'd really like to, us to do with our practice. So even small as it is, the supermarket or here or there, and it's not random acts of kindness, it's deliberate acts of kindness and deliberate acts of thoughtfulness. So one of the ways that I am working on my attentiveness, my right effort, my right mindfulness, my right concentration. This month is I am, for the next three weeks, 21 days starting today, is I am starting Lent today, three, one day after Easter, because Daniel Ellsberg is one of the um, people currently, as of today, um, making his presence known outside of the United Nations in a peaceful way. And one of the things that he's doing is he's fasting for the 21 days just to make a statement about the importance of paying attention to non-nuclear proliferation. Many of the people 
not many. Some people I have heard are going to fast. I'm not going to fast the whole 21 days, but I thought earlier, when I was thinking about telling you this tonight, I thought I'd give up something like oranges. It's not life-sustaining, but I eat a lot of oranges. I like them. So I thought, well, I'll give up oranges for 21 days. And uh, that way, every day when I reach for an orange, it won't be a terrible hardship to me. My health will not be impaired. But as I reach for the orange, I'll think to myself, oh, I'm not doing oranges for 21 days. Daniel Ellsberg and other people are at the United Nations. And I'll think some thoughts for them in terms of what they're doing there. And I'll make some prayers for... Everybody should think, as I do, that we really have to disarm the world, not arm more. And then I thought, well, I'll do bananas, because I eat bananas as much as oranges. And then this afternoon I thought, no, I'll do dessert. Because that's the, I, could, I could maybe go through a day without a desire for an orange or, an, or a banana might not be around. But I want to remember it every day. So it's not that bad of a, it's not that, so I can certainly sustain myself very healthy for three weeks without a dessert. But I'd like to ask you to think about doing it. it, You could elaborate it if you want. You could make a donation for the amounts of the oranges. or You could send a case of bananas to the homeless tent in Marin. That would actually be a neat way to do it. Go, go to the farmer's market, get a case of bananas, bring it to the homeless tent up in Nevada, and then don't eat bananas for a month. That way you will have bought a month's worth of bananas, you will have done something wholesome with it, and every time you feel like a banana, even someone offers you a banana, you remember Ellsberg and others are fasting, people are trying very hard to disarm the world. I hope they succeed. That's the way that I think we use mindfulness practice in our everyday life to create a new atmosphere and maybe transform the world, not just ourselves. Does that make sense to you? (laughs) Makes sense to me. So it's almost nine o'clock. Do you want to see what happens if you do that kind of metta practice that we do on Wednesdays? I'll show you what happens. It's a fun practice. It's a nice way to end. Yes? I was thinking about that, and um, I, I can find out precisely by next week. I won't be here next week, but I will send the message to Marianne, who will put it on the Monday night information. What you can do, because uh, I, I thought about it this afternoon too, is you can certainly call the White House on that White House line and register <coughs> that. You can call the Congress women, the senators from California, and call Barbara Boxer. Every voice counts. Really what I meant to say tonight, it's kind of my own antidote to my own despair when I, when I read Robert McNamara's book and I think about my own omissions of conscience, conscience is that uh, 
the great fear I have is that we'll be so dismayed that we'll fall into despair. And I don't want us to do that. So I want to, if, what I mainly wanted to do is to somehow convey that every voice counts and that if we all did anything, if we all did three acts of kindness a day, it would count. If we all called the White House, it would count. If we all make a Lent now for the next three weeks, We'll have so many opportunities to think encouraging thoughts for those folks who are demonstrating. And we'll have a lot of opportunities to tell other people about it because someone will say, would you like a banana? And then you'll say, no, I'm not eating bananas for this and this reason. And then you'll spread the word. Because that's uh, it's another piece of Buddha Dharma, you know. One of the most inspiring um, for me, perhaps because I'm a Dharma teacher, Lines is the teaching of the Buddha telling the monks to go out and spread the word all over the place. Tell them, speak in your own idiom. Don't say it exactly the way I said it. Say it the way you understand it. Go far and wide. Go forth, O monks, he said, and spread the word. And I always think when I'm teaching that if I do anything, what I hope to be doing is to not only to have it somehow come from that lineage through me, through you, and that each of us goes forth as an emissary in some way. I never thought I'd find myself in the place of inspiring missionaries, but I feel like that. (laughs) This is how we do metta practice on Wednesday morning. We think about how grateful we are that we have the possibility of practice in our lives. And we think how much we wish that we would be well and happy. We have a very complex practice sometimes, but the abbreviated practice that we do for a minute or two is we think of the metta resolves, may all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy. And then without saying the whole resolves, May Colin be peaceful, may Colin be happy, may Leia be peaceful, may Leia be happy, may Grace be peaceful, may Grace be happy. I just say my list. And so it always starts with Grace, Leia, Colin, Eric, Nathan, and goes from the people that are most close to me in my family through more people that I'm thinking about and more people, and then I remember more people and I remember more people. And I imagine that the words that I say are names that I say are piling up around me like leaves or like water drops and that the people around me are also piling up leaves or water drops or something that will spread and that if we say enough names, they'll spread on each other. We'll all be saying each other's names. So this is a time for the next minute. Take a breath in and out. thinking of how much we wish that beings be peaceful and happy. If you want to, say the names of the people that come to your mind that live in your heart. Grace and Colin and Leah and Nathan and Emily and Johan and Peter and Trish 
and Liz and Hans and Michael and Sarah and Seymour and Marianne and Jack and James and Jane and Rihanna and Caroline and Aaron and Douglas and Heidi and Karen and Jeffrey and Jennifer and Zalman and Eve and Miles and Kinaris and Jeff and Joanna and Meg and Judy and Mayumi and Roberta and John For all of those people named and all of those not named, people near and people far, beings here and beings far, those already born, those that are yet to be, may all beings be peaceful and happy, may all beings come to the end of suffering. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at S.R. Munite on April 17, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.